And if you would take out your copies of God's word together with me that has been brought near to you today. And turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to be in verses 15 through 30 today, Lord willing. As we continue our march through this wonderful gospel of Luke. Again, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 15. Listen carefully, because this is the word of Christ for you this morning. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that is Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come. And follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may it be preached to you. Let's now pray once more and ask God's blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we have a wonderful, a challenging, a life-altering passage. So help us to see it well. Help our hearts to receive it that we may live it. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What must I do? To inherit eternal life. 
That's the question the rich young ruler asks Jesus in this passage, and it's a question that has been asked many times since. At first glance, it would seem that this is the question for us to ask. Many of us would be thrilled if we had heard that question posed to us, whether it be on the the bus or around the family table. But why is it that Jesus doesn't seem as thrilled to hear this question? Why is it that Jesus, instead of launching into a sinner's prayer request, that instead he corrects the man's question and then seems to give him the wrong answer as to how to inherit eternal life? Why is Jesus doing this? Was he not paying attention in his catechism class growing up? Is this not the same Jesus that's later going to inspire Paul to write, for by grace you have been saved through faith? And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Did Ephesians just update the gospel? No. What we're going to find here is a very challenging teaching of Jesus. Jesus wants us to ask a different question. Instead of what must I do to inherit eternal life, what God wants us to ask is what must God do so that we may inherit eternal life? That's what we're going to look at in this passage today. What must God do so that I may inherit eternal life? We're going to look at this passage through our customary two points. I can't change it now. This has been this way for a year, so two points. The first is that the kingdom is for people who trust Christ alone without reserve. The kingdom is for people who trust Christ alone, without reserve. And secondly, citizens of the kingdom are made by God and will be lavishly rewarded. Citizens of the kingdom are made by God and will be lavishly rewarded. So first, we're going to take a look at, again, our first point, that the kingdom of God is for people who trust Christ alone, without reserve. And we're going to take a look at this first passage first paragraph here in verse 15. Here we find Jesus is teaching, as he usually does. And here in verse 15, we see some excited parents that have the opportunity to bring their children to Jesus. And they're even bringing their infants to him so that they may find a blessing from Christ. Now, the disciples don't like this. They see these parents coming along with these children and they think Jesus has better things to do. So they rebuke them, try to turn them away, saying Jesus doesn't have time for that. Now, as much as we would like to say, of course we'd let the little children come in. It's because we've seen what Jesus' response was. Quite honestly, it's very easy for us to do the same thing. How many of us, if we were to have a famous guest preacher come into the church, that we would tell our children who want to show the famous preacher what they drew in Sunday school this morning, that we would say, hey, buddy, wait, let him talk to other people. We would think that there's more important things for this man to be doing. After all, these infants can't respond to Christ. Probably not even going to remember that they saw Jesus. And more than, and Jesus is more than a teacher. There's also sick people in the village to be healed. There are dead people to be raised. How does infants 
holding them rise to the top of the priority list. But they do. Jesus doesn't think that he has more important things to do. And in fact, in the parallel passage to this, um, uh, to uh, the parallel passage in Mark for, for this story, adds the detail that Jesus was indignant when he saw the disciples behaving in this way. He was rebuking them for rebuking the parents and saying, let the little children come to me. Now, this is more of a shocking statement than we realize because we prize children in our society, or at least uh, the Christian side of American society. We don't seem to prize that much in our secular society. That's another point entirely. When Jesus was coming to these children, children were not valued. They couldn't do anything. A lot of them passed away before they were, the, before they were one years old. So it was easier to keep an emotional distance from the children. But here, Jesus invites them to this kingdom. They are just as much of an importance to Jesus as the adults who are around him. That's a wonderful thing. As Presbyterians, we're used to that. That's why we, part of the reason why we baptize children, not because of this text. We don't know this, is, this doesn't prove infant baptism as much as I would like it to. But what this does encourage us to think is, is how would we push the children back when it seems like Jesus wants the children to come? Gives us a thought of how we can do this. So how do we bring little children to Jesus today? How do we go about bringing kids as Christ would like us to? Well, Riken offers us some suggestions. One of our commentators quotes, he says, Jesus loves children right now as much as he loved them the day he gave his gracious invitation to let them come. We are encouraged, therefore, to bring our children to Jesus. We bring them to Jesus by reading them Bible stories. We bring them to Jesus by calling them to faith and repentance. We bring them to Jesus by praying for God to bless them. So bring the baby who is yet unborn. Bring the little girl with a disability. Bring the boy who loves to disobey. Bring them all to the Savior who loves them, who wants to bless them, and who says, let the children come to me. This is our calling is to bring our children and let them see Jesus. Charles Spurgeon added it this way, how can we hope to see the kingdom of our Lord advance when his own disciples do not teach his gospel to their own sons and daughters? Our kids are important. Jesus said so. So that should be a focus for us, that they are important too. Now, before we teach our children about Jesus, there's actually something that we can learn from them about Jesus. And that's what he points out for us in verse 17. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, what does Jesus mean here? We're receiving the kingdom like a little child. Is he asking us all to be immature? No. Is he asking us to be selfish or disobedient? No. What he is pulling out here is the utter dependence that children have on their parents. Anyone who has held a baby, when especially in the, those early weeks and months, knows they can do nothing for themselves. They can't even hold their own head up. 
completely helpless and completely dependent on their parents, on their caregivers. Granger can still, after 14 months of training, still do hardly anything for himself. Can't even put on his own shirt. This is why, for those of us young people, a little little admonition to us all, before we make fun of our parents for not understanding the computer, remember that they had to show you how a spoon works. So keep that in mind, a little humility. And this is the way that Jesus wants us to be to him, is to be utterly dependent. That we have no illusions of what we are or who we are or what credit we may or may not have with God. One of uh, Kent Hughes had put it this way, a child does not battle self-righteousness in coming to Christ. He imagines a child saying, Lord, I have been constant in my attendance for years. I have sat at the Lord's table for half a century. I give a lot of money to missions. Children don't do that. They don't have anything to call upon as saying, look what I've done for you, God. They have nothing in which to bring. And neither do we. We may have lived longer. We may have had more things that we've been busy about. But we can't recommend ourselves more to God than our little infants on our arms do. We must be utterly dependent on God. And must be, as Hughes also points out, ready and willing to receive. None of us have ever had a child that says, you know what? You've been working really hard. Why don't you sit back? I'll get my cereal this morning. No infant has ever said that. No one says, aw, you shouldn't have. No, they're very willing and ready to receive anything that you'll give them. And that when they have needs, you'll know about it. And Jesus invites us to be like that to him. That when we have needs, to bring them to him. And that when he brings grace, we don't have to say, oh, you shouldn't have. We know he shouldn't have, but he gives us grace anyway. Because we're babies, we're infants, and we need blessing. Everything needs to be done for us. Both before and after salvation, by the way. Frank Barker has a story of when he was raising small children, that when he would have them, it was time for them to get up and get dressed in the morning, and they still had trouble mastering the whole concept of a shirt, that they would look up to him and say, Daddy, you do it. And he would help them put on the shirt. And he says that that's a lot how it should still work for us. When God calls us to do something, we say, Daddy, you do it. That we still need that help. You don't graduate onto a, a list of a more independent streak once you come to Christ. You're always dependent on him. You never outgrow your need for the gospel. You never graduate, as Paul Tripp says, from the school of grace. You're always going to need him. And if you don't recognize that, if you don't submit to that, then you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And how do we know that? Well, we've got this example of the rich young ruler. Every place this story appears, it's preceded by, let the children come to me. And come to me as a little child. Next thing, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are all the places. Rich young ruler's next. This is an example of someone who believes himself to not be needy. To not be like a child. 
And let's see how this plays out as we look into our second point, that the citizens of the kingdom are made by God and will be lavishly rewarded. So here is our rich young ruler. We know he is both rich and young and a ruler by combining all three witnesses together. There's no mention of his age here in this particular passage. But here he begins, he comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Note the contradiction in terms. If you inherit something, there's nothing you can really do to earn that. It's something that you inherit. It's a grace. It's a gift. So kind of a mixture of terms and how he approaches this. But Jesus addresses the first things first, which is good. Now, why does Jesus do this? Is Jesus saying that he's not good? Is Jesus somehow admitting a sin nature here? No, he's not. We look into another passage in Scripture, Hebrews 4, 15, says very clearly, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Bible is very clear that Jesus is perfectly good. The standard of goodness, totally righteous. So Jesus is not saying that he's bad here. But what he is challenging this young ruler on is his concept of goodness. We can think that we're good because we've compared ourselves to other bad people, but that's not the standard. Other people's level of commitment is not the standard. Other people's attendance at church or faithfulness in prayer or Bible reading is not the standard. God is the standard of goodness. Changes the scales radically, doesn't it? This is what Jesus is inviting him in to consider. But our young ruler passes over his head. And Jesus continues and enlists a few of the commandments. All of these are from the second table of the law. The commands that are talking about how you're supposed to interact with other people. He hasn't gotten to the first few commandments yet. That's coming. But for the moment, he's letting them say... Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, all those sorts of things. And the man responds that he has kept all of those commands since he was a boy. That's quite a claim. To have said, nope, I've kept all the rules. So I guess I'm good, right? I guess that's it. Well, Jesus takes it to this next level. And lets him know that the commandments are not just don'ts. That these are whole categories of how to live otherwise. It's not just don't lie. It's also be honest. It's not just don't steal. It's also be generous. And then he gets to the real heart of what Jesus is saying here. By the way, if you would like to, as a wonderful study, this is just a little side note here. The wonderful study of the Ten Commandments, um, the Westminster Standards and and the larger catechism goes through all the Ten Commandments and takes a look at what all the implications are, both the things you should avoid and the things that that this should promote. It's a beautiful study and really shows how well thought out these Ten Commandments are. So now back to here, a little Presbyterian promotion. But now we'll move back. And he tells Jesus, and Jesus is here that I have kept all these things for my youth. And then verse 22, Jesus responds. And he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus says, this is what you must do in order to inherit eternal life. 
Now, is that the right answer for everybody? It isn't. Not fully. Because if we were to look in chapter 19, very next chapter, when we look at Zacchaeus, he says that he will sell half of his possessions to the poor. And Jesus says that salvation has come to his house. So this is not a guiding principle of saying that all Christians have to sell all that they have in order to follow Jesus. Now, if you felt relief when I said that, then there may be a heart check that we need to do here. What possesses you? That's what Jesus is asking here. Where is your chief treasure? Now we're getting into the first commandment. Love you, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what he's getting at here. That have no other gods before me. Again, this is something that brings us some sobriety as we look at this command because the man turns away and leaves it behind. He was called to trust God without reserve. And that meant not reserving his possessions. And here's the thing. We have the tendency to look at this and say, I was like, okay, well, that may be a rich person's problem, but <laughs> I'm not rich. So this isn't something that applies to me. I don't have to worry about this. The love of money can possess you even if you don't possess money. We can want the life that riches can afford without having it and can be in the same position as this rich man is even without a lot of money in our bank account or without a lot of possessions. I came across, uh, Abby introduced me to a song this week. It's called I Shall Not Want by Audrey, Audrey Assad. And she pulls out a lot of things that we can be rich in and need deliverance from. She puts it the following way. From the love of my own comfort. From the fear of having nothing. From a life of worldly passions. Deliver me, O God. From the need to be understood. From the need to be accepted. From the fear of being lonely. Deliver me, O God. And then she continues, from the fear of serving others, from the fear of death or trial, from the fear of humility, deliver me, O oh God. We can be rich in a lot of things besides money. And even if you're here in the U.S., on a global scale, we are quite wealthy, even if we're poor by USA standards. But we can be rich in a lot of other things. Rich in time. Rich in comfort. Rich in preferences, rich in our own agenda, our own desires for how the world should be run, or at least how ours should be run anyway. All of those things Jesus can calls us to leave behind as well. As one commentator put it, this path differs from person to person in particulars, but one element remains the same. God is to be trusted and to have first place. That's our call. And anything that stands in the way of first place is a danger to us. 
And that's what we see here with this rich young ruler. He walks away sad. Jesus exposed where his heart truly was, and it wasn't with God. It was with his money. He wasn't willing to give that up for Jesus because he had too much stuff. He wasn't good enough. Then Jesus continues, and he said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is being very literal here. There have been some that have taken a look at this passage and said, like, well, back in this time, there used to be a really short gate that you could enter into a city that was called the, was called the, um, called the Needle's Eye Gate. And you would need to have a camel get down on its knees and take off its burdens and crawl into the, the city. That's a beautiful illustration. It's just not true. We don't even see any hint of that until like the year 1100. So it's just, Sorry. That's not what this passage means. This is not a call for you to leave beside your burdens and then you'll fit. This is a call to saying you don't fit. The camel was the largest animal that any person in his hearing would have seen. And the idea that something that large is going to fit through something that small is laughable. It is purposefully absurd. And we miss the impact of what Jesus is saying when he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. Because we tend to look at that and say, yeah, those awful rich people, they're a lot harder to save than I am. But we miss the point. At that time, there was thought that rich people were closer to God. And they were especially blessed. So here Jesus is flipping categories on them and saying, oh, you think these people are blessed? You think these people are closer to God? It's easier for them for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for them to make it into heaven. That's why the disciples respond, then who can be saved? For us today, if we were to say it is easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for pastors to make it into heaven. We would assume, of course, pastors are going to heaven. I'll wait. But here he's saying this is impossible for us to get into heaven. Now, it is true. We don't want to pass over and then say, it's just like, okay, well, if he's mentioning all of us, then wealth is not really a problem. No, wealth can be a real struggle. People who have a lot of things, it's hard for them to see their need. But people who have little can also have this problem too. All of these, anything that causes us to not trust in God is a problem. But here... Jesus is making this greater point. It's hard for us all to get into the kingdom of God. We're all rich in some way. We all need the grace of God. None of us are good enough to enter. But look at what Jesus says here. Listen to this hope. He said it's impossible for us to get through the eye of a needle But then he said, verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. A camel can't fit through the eye of a needle unless God wants him to. And then he will fit. He has no choice but to fit. And that's the hope for us. 
Citizens are, do not earn the kingdom. Citizens are made. Citizens are formed by God in the kingdom of heaven. One scholar put it this way, God can break the spell that wealth holds on some people. And one might add, he can break any other spell that grips a person's heart. He can break the grip of whatever's got a hold of your heart. Whether it's something good or bad. Whether it's a darling sin that you keep off to the side and you're just not quite ready to let go of, God can break that for you. Or if it's something good, a nice nest egg, God can break the power that has on you as well. Now one of the things that's wonderful as we see is that when we are not called, when we give up these things, that we're called then to no reward. Look at what Jesus says as he goes on. Verse 28, Peter says, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And then Jesus responds, says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. This is what Jesus offers to us. He is offering to us himself. And there is nothing that you can give that would outweigh himself. Absolutely nothing. I love that song that I mentioned earlier. Whereas, deliver me from the fear of serving others or death or trial or fear from humility. The chorus goes like this, and I shall not want, and I shall not want. When I taste your goodness, I shall not want. This is what Jesus is calling to. Yes, we are called to give up things that we are going to give up one way or the other. Your wealth is not eternal. Your family is not eternal. Your comfort is not eternal. Your time, here on earth at least, is not eternal. All of those things you will run out of. But Christ will not. Christ goes on for eternity. Christ does not rust. Christ is not destroyed. Christ is not overspent. Christ is for you forever. As Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When we give up these worldly things that aren't going to last anyway, we gain hold of something far more glorious. That's where I can put it. He says, have you learned to trust in Jesus for everything you need? Not just to trust that he will give you what you need, but that he is what you need. I'll wait. Very good. It's an invitation to return if you've wandered. So what's our takeaway? What is it that we learn from this passage? Is that Christ offers himself to you. Christ has given you eternal life. 
He has died on the cross to purchase it and offers it to him, offers himself to you for blessings now and then. There is joy to be found in Christ today. There is peace to be found in Christ today. There is forgiveness to be found in Christ today. And blessings in the hereafter. And eternal bliss. So don't turn away from that. Don't leave that on the table because you were extremely rich in something else. Sounds almost ironic to hear it that way, isn't it? Passed up Jesus because I have Netflix to watch. I've got a retirement to go on. I've got a boat I need to buy. What? Passing up Christ for that? Don't do that. Now, if you're saying here today, well, I want to want Christ, but I just can't seem to get my heart in that, in that place. Congratulations that you realize that. You can't get your heart in that place. So ask Jesus to do it. Say, Daddy, help. I need you. You can't save yourself. You can't put the camel through the needle's eye. But you can submit to the one who can bring you in, who has passed through the needle's eye for you and can bring you along. Now, maybe you're hearing this today and you're thinking to yourself, well, I have been following Christ. Been following him for many years. But that song with the I shall not want, it's not my experience. I still want stuff. I still feel a lack in my walk with Christ. There might be a couple reasons as to why. Could be you're going through a very hard season at this time. And if you go through the Psalms, you'll find a lot of comfort and camaraderie in where you are in that moment. Jesus, where is your face? How long, O oh Lord? A third of the Psalms are that way. Go through and read some. What you'll find is at the end of the prayer, they find God again. And they find their peace and security once more in him. So if you're having a difficulty and saying Christ is not what he used to be when I first came to him, it might be you're in a tough season. So come to him in prayer. Cry out to God, little baby. And your father will come and heal you again. Don't feel like you're in a especially bad case or that Jesus hasn't heard that before. He's heard that since David. He'll hear it again. And he'll be there again. Now it might be we're still feeling like, no, I still feel like Jesus isn't enough. Well, then I'll ask you, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that you're trying to see? What is it that you're trying to have in your life? And would you be comfortable if Jesus came to you today and said, you're not getting that? Would you still follow him? If the answer to that is, no, I don't think I would follow him unless I was guaranteed to have this. Then that's exactly what you need to give up. Don't let that be the reason why you turn away from Jesus sad. Don't pass up eternal life because you don't have X, Y, or Z. Be comfortable that if Jesus never gives you that thing that you're looking for, know that he has given him himself. That, that is sufficient. That is a good thing. Leave it behind. 
And if the answer is yes, I would still follow Christ if I didn't have that thing, then that's wonderful. Lean into that in your heart. Preach that to yourself every day if you have to. And be reminded that nothing is worse passing up Christ, my friends. There is a famous or rather infamous investor. His name is Ronald Wayne. Some of you may never have heard of him. He was a man who was in the early days of Apple Computer. In fact, he was going to be one of the accountants for the company in its earliest days in the late 70s. He was given a 10% share of the company. He lasted all of 12 days. The stress of being in an early tech startup in the late 70s was just too much for him. So he sold his 10% share of the company for $2,300 in exchange for not getting any further profits from the company. Had he held on to those shares, he would be worth $100 billion today. Now, interestingly, when he was asked about that decision, he still maintains that he made the best decision with the information that he had. There was no guarantee that Apple was going to be a successful computer company. It was a startup in the 70s, just like everybody else was. There's no guarantee of success. But he goes on and says something interesting. He said the stress that it would have caused him to ride up and down the volatile tech market in the late 70s and early 80s said that those shares would have made him the richest person in the cemetery. It would have killed him going up and down like that all day. The money wasn't worth it to him. That's the point I think we should draw out from this man's experience. We look around and are promised a hundred billion. It's not worth your soul. Even if you're promised the whole world, the scripture says, it profit you nothing if you lose your soul in the process. So don't make a bargain that you're going to lose. Don't seek after something else that is going to fade. Having a hundred billion dollars and then be in the cemetery a year later. It's not worth it. It's not. Your soul is worth far more than anything else you could have in this life. And this life is so short. I mean, come on, we've all gotten up today. We we look back, how many decades have passed already? You can still remember your first grade school days. It's like that, and here we are. We'll turn around again, and it'll be gone. Don't try to hold on to something that's rapidly running away from you. Instead, embrace someone who is rapidly running to you, who promises to care for you, who promises to love you, and promises to provide everything for you. So trust him. It's difficult to let go of possessions. Possessions are comforting. So we look at them and we think we're cared for by them. There is someone who will care for you no matter what. So go be bold. Let it all go for the kingdom. It's not saying we all have to go sell our houses and become vagrants. That's not the point. The point is that we look at all of our possessions as we say, how is the Lord wanting me to use these things? This is not a house to just provide me security, but it's to provide my neighbor security. This food is not just for me. It's for others. This money's not just for me. It's for the kingdom of God. We're stewards of those things. 
stewards of one who has promised to care for us both now and in eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time that you've given to us today. To be reminded that not only are you faithful, but you are good. That you hold us in the palm of your hand. And that you have promised blessing. Because you've promised us yourself. I pray that you would help us to embrace that. That we would not look to ourselves and think that, well, I think I can fit through that needle. We can't. Pray that you would help us to realize that. And that we would come to you rich or poor, proud or humble. We all need you. And I pray that we would come. It's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.